Great. I am thrilled to have Sam Sullivan, BC Liberal Party candidate for Vancouver Falls Creek on Coastal Front podcast today. For decades, Sam has been a deeply passionate and driven advocate for all the residents of Vancouver. Sam served as city councillor from 1993 to 2002 and later went on to be the mayor of Vancouver from 2005 to 2008. Sam is the founder of the Sam Sullivan Disability Foundation and six organizations that currently support the quality of life initiatives for people with disabilities across Canada. Sam's lifelong efforts were recognized in 2005 with his induction into the Order of Canada, our nation's highest civilian award for community achievement. Sam is on the campaign trail again under the BC Liberal Party banner, vying for his third term as MLA for Vancouver Falls Creek. Today, we'll be talking about the BC Liberal platform, neighborhood security, homelessness in Vancouver, and the fast tracking of the development of public schools in Olympic Village. Welcome to the show, Sam. Let's get started. Thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate you putting this together. We need to have more engagement with the public, and uh, this is a great opportunity. Thanks for it, making it happen. Well, thank you. And, and it, of course, it is odd times with COVID-19. Um, so I do appreciate you taking the time to come down here. Let's start off right away with the election itself and talking about winning in this next election. And my question to you is simple. What does winning in this election look like for the BC Liberal Party? Well, this is probably one of the most important elections because it's the critical time when we make this pivot from trying to save people from dying of COVID uh, to actually rebuilding our economy. So... Um, the question is, how do we do it? Do we use sort of NDP techniques of more taxation and government driven, or do we uh, make this uh, lower taxation, freeing up businesses to uh, do what they do best, which is create prosperity? And uh, I think the, uh, you know, if people really think about it, you know, what uh, kind of government do we need? And I think that the public was very prescient in electing the NDP, you know, because they are good at giving out tax money. They're, they're very good at, you know, uh, creating more government programs. And that's exactly what we needed. You know, so people have to now ask, is that what we need going forward? You know, like we sort of blew the bank right now with $13.5 billion, stunning numbers. It is a stunning number. And when you look at the BC's uh, proportion of the federal, we're looking at another $35 billion. Like we're, we're well over $50 billion for BC's uh, contribution alone, and that's a deficit of six months. Um, these are unheard of. You know, this is just stunning. And uh, somebody does have to pay for that eventually. This is not free money. This is a money that we have to... Uh, pay for. And so the question is, how are we going to dig ourselves out of this hole? Do we do that through typical government, big government programs, and the government will drive the economy forward? That never worked. Who, whoever heard of that working? We need to have a government and a party that is familiar with how to grow the economy. And we did a good job, I think, up until recently. Uh, we were number one in the country, and uh, we were putting aside a lot of money, you know, uh, in my term, the first term, uh, 2013 to 2017, we put aside $5.5 billion. Our COVID response was supposed to be $5 billion. 
So we paid for more than the entire COVID response that was budgeted originally. So um, I note that earlier this year, our Minister of Finance, uh, Carol James said, gone are the days when we hoard our surpluses. And I thought, <laughs> that's so funny. That's such an interesting way to talk about surpluses, hoarding. You know, my grandparents told me, uh, what you gotta do is when you're in debt, you pay your debts off first, you put money aside, and, and you, you, know, you, uh, you make sure you look after your fin financial obligations. She, they never told me that uh, hoarding extra money is actually uh, what you're doing. It's hoarding your, your money. No, it's called saving. It's called paying your debts off and, and uh, looking after your financial well-being. Uh, so for the Minister of Finance to talk about saving money as hoarding is stunning. You know, I just flabbergasted at that. And, and because of the NDP, they put aside not a lot of money. You know, they tried to make it so that they just made enough to be in, in the black because that's actually legally what they have to do. We're, we're, you know, we have to have balanced budgets. But, uh, you know, that, that uh, I think is people have to really think about it. Do they really want the NDP digging a, a, us out of this hole or do they want the B BC Liberals? Um, I, I'm completely aligned with your comment. Um, the term hoarding, I think, is a poor use of the words when you're right. I, I, I the catch the, uh, the old phrase of uh, save for a rainy day. Mm -hmm. It makes a lot of sense. Now, the Liberal Party had many years of a uh, number of years of surpluses, and that's what how you would have accumulated that five billion dollar uh, sort of uh, in four years. In, yeah. in four years, um, now we, you're right. We are in unprecedented times. Um, this is uh, every single government, provincially and federally, is running deficits because of COVID. Um, what are your views about the the thought that? A lot of governments are abusing this as an opportunity to spend beyond what would be considered expected or reasonable in, in such strange times. Yeah, it's it's reckless. It's irresponsible. Um, you know, they they seem to think this is just free money that that uh, they don't recognize that their children are going to have to pay this debt off, and uh, we don't know what will happen with interest rates in the future. Surely they have to go up at some point. And then we're paying interest on all of this money, um, you know. So I, I do think it's uh, really irresponsible and reckless to take on more while we're already well. Since we're already blowing the budget, why don't we just blow it a bit more? You know, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> quite stunning. It's not you know? free. And Money's never free. Uh, nobody's nobody's blinking an eye, <laughs> and they're getting away with it. So uh, uh, it's you know I, I recognize that what happens is. Usually left-wing governments come in below the bank and then the right-wing governments have to come in and try to sort it all out, you know. That is a typical uh, rhythm of government in this in this world. So, um, so do you think it's reasonable to think that the Liberal Party could win this election today? I think it's possible. Um, you know, when, I, when my very first election provincially, we were down to 20% in the polls. We weren't supposed to win. Nobody, nobody predicted we were going to win. And I think when people really think it through and they get down to that, putting that X down and they think, uh, do I vote, you know, 
uh, for uh, fiscal, uh, you know, uh, good behavior? Do we care about our jobs? Do we care about our children and what, what they have, what future they have? I think that's possible that uh, they might just vote for their own well-being. Yeah. Sam, I, um, I took some time to read through your lengthy profile and your career as a politician. And one of the things that struck me was uh, there's been a few times that you, uh, whether it's a, a public election or running within a party, there's a few times that you've lost, but it seems like on the whole, you're, you're a winner in this space. But there's been some tight races, including the last provincial election. You won by less than 600 votes. But, you know, when you went, I use a hockey analogy, when you win a hockey game, they don't ever ask whether you won by one goal or six. They <laughs> just, did you win or did you lose? Yeah. So there's uh, clearly you're striking a chord with voters, but this is probably going to be uh, one of your toughest elections because the liberals, uh, sorry, the NDP, I mean, they didn't call an election just because of what John Horgan states, which is it's never a bad time to ask people. I mean, they they this is strategic for them because there was an election scheduled for next year. My question to you is, if you do get elected for a third term, what will that allow you to do over the next four years? Well, the two priorities that I have, uh, one is to restore um, safety to our neighborhoods. What's gone on in the last few months is um, something I've never seen. I've lived in the, in the Yale Town area, you know, for going on 15 years, you know, and uh, we've never seen anything like it. We have the most outrageous behavior on the street. It's, it's frightening, you know. Uh, we, I have neighbors who are for the first time are talking about leaving, they're moving. And uh, the amount of listings that you're now seeing and the, the, the lower prices that you're seeing that are unusual for the, the, the city, uh, clearly something's gone wrong. And there have been decisions by the NDP, especially around mental illness and addictions, you know, putting people in uh, untreated, and unsupported in the middle of um, vibrant, successful, complete communities where you have the second highest density of children under the age of 12 in the city. Is that right? The second highest density. You know, wow. Uh, this is not, uh, you know, singles living downtown. This yeah. is, uh, we have. These are families. We've got uh, Crosstown uh, School. We've got Elsie Roy. We've got you know, Falls Creek, uh, we need, all of the parents are, you know, struggling because they have to send kids out of uh, the riding, out of different neighborhoods. They live downtown so that they can be environmentally sustainable, live, living in lives like that. And uh, the idea is that they walk to work and, you know, they can do everything, their shopping and all their entertainment is by foot. 60% of all trips in the riding are made by foot versus uh, typical suburbs where it's 5%. You know, it's really quite remarkable. So uh, now we have um, parents. Uh, I, I know one parent just uh, asked me about the, where he walks his children to the Crosstown School. There was a stabbing right there at that very corner where he walks. And he said, do I have to arm myself now? Or what am I, why am I living here? You know, this is uh, outrageous, you know, that we actually have to when we walk down the street, we look at who we think is on the street and do we think this is safe? And if it's not, then we go another way. You know, we've never had to do that before. Well, it's a, it's quite a good point. You know, uh, I lived with my wife uh, in um, uh, near Nelson and, and Smythe 
um, or sorry, Nelson and, and Hornby uh, from when we first met in 2008 mm -hmm. until we moved up to West Point Gray in uh, 2013. And we had two little babies. Uh, we have three kids now, but we had two little uh, baby girls and we would take them down uh, down the street or my wife would down to the park down there. Emery Barnes? And, uh, Emory. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it was a nice park and lots of families there, lots of tons of kids. My wife was down there um, this summer with one of her friends who lives downtown with that have a, a younger child. And she said, Andrew, it's so different now than we were there. She said there were literally three guys that looked like they were doing a drug deal in the park, yep. like in the playground area. Like this is a playground where kids, I mean, it's very clear this is an area for children and children only. And um, dog park. Yes, yes, that's right. There's a attached dog. Yeah. And and dogs are coming to their humans with a needle in their mouth. You know, really? we're, we're here. Wow. The parents, when they go, first of all, they fan out across the playground area and look for needles. Mm -hmm. When it's safe, they let their kids in. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, it's unfortunate. We can't we can't let that continue. Now, um, on this topic of of neighborhood security. Um, the Vancouver Sun recently reported, and I think this is also on your social media feed, that commercial break-ins in Vancouver up 48% in this year, in 2020. Um, now, look, these kind of stats, uh, whether it's anecdotal evidence that we just talked about or these kind of um, VPD statistics are, you know, it would be very easy to point the finger at the NDP and say, well, it's your fault. But there's also, I got to think, a factor of COVID-19 here. Um, I'd also heard, I don't know if this is true or not, that, that residential break-ins had dropped and commercial break-ins had increased because people were all at home and, you know, generally criminals want to avoid conflict. Um, but maybe can you, can you address what you think attributes to this? But it's still a big increase, 48%. That's a huge increase. I don't know how much of that could be attributed to COVID versus other policy, policy failures. Okay. So the NDB government, um, against the advice of public health, because this is what they say, oh, it's a public health initiative, uh, to, to bring people with serious untreated addictions and mental illness and uh, you know put them in hotels and uh, spaces. Um, that, uh, that, that was actually recommended against by public health. They thought it would be very disorienting and it would cause more overdose deaths. And it's true, they did. Overdose deaths are way up. So, um, but when you take people with serious addictions, drop them in a neighborhood, what do you think they're going to do? These people are addicted. They need the drugs. They will, in order to get the drugs, they need money. They need money now. And they will do whatever they need. I understand that, you know, of course. That's going to happen. And so you get people who are trying to run businesses in Yale Town. People will walk in, grab stuff and walk out uh, and sell it for 10 cents on the dollar. Uh, we have uh, people who are there are a lot of break and enters going into parkades, um, a lot of aggressive panhandling. And it's a very uncomfortable, tense time on the street. This is a, you know, a neighborhood full of children, a lot of elderly people. Uh, you know, who are afraid to go out of the house now. So this is just unacceptable in, in, and, you know, then I asked the question, why would we put people with these serious problems uh, in the most expensive part of the most expensive city in Canada? 
55 million dollars with, with the highest amount of children per, yeah. per per capita as you were saying earlier but but even just uh imagine what you can get in terms of bang for your buck and you know the amount of housing you can get to someone they they bought the howard johnson for 55 million dollars now that sold two two years ago for 42 million so um i thought this government was against speculation you know but they they delivered a 13 million dollar windfall to the landowner after two years uh, pretty good deal, I would say. Um, but why would you, when you could have taken $50 million, $5 million and bought two or three or four times as much housing as that in anywhere, any other part of the city, you know, any other part of the region, um, I, I do have to question. So what that. do you think the rationale is behind that then? Is, it, is the idea there that uh, we shouldn't be displacing homeless people or people who have addiction issues um, and moving them across town or into areas that are yeah. as you know, is it it's hard to know because uh, many people within the sector complained they said why is it that we're not allowed to talk to the neighborhood like this was done without notification no one told us I, I had to people were saying there's something going on on the street but I don't know what's happening there there's this violent behavior and aggressiveness and whatever What's happened? And we looked into it, and sure enough, bought hotels and moved people in, a lot of them from Oppenheimer Park. Hmm. So I, I've never seen a government act in this way in which they would say, let's just put it in there. Don't say anything to anybody. Maybe they won't notice. You know? like, <laughs> and Sam, seriously? just to, for the listeners to be clair, where, where is the Howard Johnson located? It's on Granville Street, on uh, Granville near, Street. Uh, between uh, Davies and Nelson. It's yeah. Okay. Well, I, I got to think that you've got a pretty good perspective on this, not only as a longtime resident that you and Lynn have lived downtown for 15 years, but you also used to be the mayor of Vancouver, which gives you, I would imagine, a particular advantage. Um, what kind of view do you have on how much of this is a responsibility of policing by the Vancouver police or a responsibility of the city versus the province? And I'm sure well, it's a very complex yeah. question. So, as a former mayor, and remember, I was city council in 1993, when none of this these neighborhoods existed downtown. Yeah, good point. We re, we rezoned them. We oversaw it. We we nurtured these neighborhoods. We said this is a new model of environmental responsibility. We can actually create complete communities. And remember, a lot of the social housing in my neighborhood, I put it in. You know, like there was 14 sites. Uh, three of them were within six blocks of my home. And we put them in. These are people with addictions, people with challenges. and But they are supported. They are properly. In, in what way? Can you elaborate for the listeners who aren't familiar with this? I mean, I, I've got a lot of people who are listening to this. They live in Olympic Village. They're working professionals like myself. And they may see the, act, the negative side of this activity going on, but they don't understand the difference between someone who's supported versus not, other than the, the word supported. Can you elaborate yeah, a little yeah. further? Well, there's different ways to support people. You, you provide staff who uh, you know, help them with uh, life skills. They help them with employment. You know, there are a number of people that have um, you know, uh, part-time employment that are, they go around and actually pick up all the garbage. You know, these are people who wouldn't normally get full-time work, you wouldn't probably you bring them into Canaccord and setting them up or whatever. Yeah. But uh, they have challenges, and, and but when they're given uh, the supports, they are good neighbors. And you know, one of the people who has endorsed me is a former uh, president of the 
Vancouver area network of drug users <laughs> who I've worked. Uh, it's an amazing group. You know, uh, it's one of my favorite groups. Or they've got AGMs. I spoke at their AGM, and they make motions and they, you know, uh, pass uh, things. And they are uh, very. Uh, I mean, this guy probably would have worked at Canaccord when he at the beginning of his career, and he got overwhelmed by addiction and ended up in the downtown east side. Now he's uh, got himself out of that hole, and he's now working at UBC and. Uh, but he has, uh, he said to me, Sam, we don't want to be bad neighbors. You know, we're, we're regular folks. We all grew up in families that you would recognize, you know, in houses. And, and uh, so, and he said, I'm a fiscal conservative. I don't want to see government wasting money on us. You know, I want to, hmm. uh, we want to pull our own weight. And uh, so, I, I, you know, there's many, many different options of how to support people. Myself, I have a particular interest in the Swiss model where uh, they had the largest open drug scene in, in Europe. 20,000 people lived in one park, all people with addictions. And the Swiss who are conservative people on the right, you know, you would say, uh, practical. They don't want to spend any more money than they have to. They said, why don't we take the middleman out of this, the criminal who, drug pusher, and just provide some uh, options like uh, maintenance. You know, actually, they give them heroin in, in Switzerland. Uh, you can also give them other opiates, uh, morphine, and things like that. And that just takes the drive away, the need to get drugs, the need to steal, the need to uh, panhandle. That is. Uh, this would be described as safe supply, I think, and is a common term today. Or? I don't call it that. I no? call safe neighborhood supply. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's a big, big frame of uh, uh, re reference difference. So uh, they, so I came back saying, "Hey, Switzerland, look, they don't have street disorder. They don't have much in the way of overdose, and uh, the kids aren't getting into drugs because in in Vancouver, uh, the drug scene, ah, that's with hot cars and uh, you know girls and you know uh, uh, you know glamour and rebel and you know." these kind of image that are attractive to some young people. Not in Switzerland. No, the drug addicts are the guys that line up at the pharmacy every morning. And mm, I don't think that's for us. You know, uh, what, else, what else do we want to do with our lives? So Switzerland does not have, um, in Switzerland every year, the average age of addicts goes up one year, hmm. meaning there's no kids getting involved. And uh, so I came back and said, this is amazing what's happening there. We've got to look at this. And they said, no, 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 you don't understand. Swiss people are totally different than British Columbians. <laughs> I said, really? Like, how do you mean by that? Uh, no, no, they're, it's not, you, they're totally different context, different, uh, everything's different. Uh, if you want to do this, you're going to have to have a, a drug uh, research trial. Okay, well, if we have to, let's do it. So we put together I put together an organization called Interchange Foundation. We, I, I got John Reynolds, uh, who's, you know, you know John Reynolds, uh, leader of the Conservative Party at the one time. Uh, I got uh, Joy McPhail and um, Don Ricks, who was a major federal liberal, put them on the board and they raised $14 million, got the program done. Salome, it was called 183 addicts of the most hardcore Every, the average had been through treatment 11 times. 
One of them had uh, been arrested 200 times, spent 200 jail terms. And they provided them with this, and that fellow has not been in jail since. Hmm. Uh, homelessness went to zero. There hasn't been an overdose death among this most hardcore group. Employment doubled. The interactions with the police went down over 90%. The interactions with the medical system, over 90% decrease. They don't go, they don't spend their time in emergency rooms, in ambulances with Narcan and Naloxone. Uh, they are shining examples of how one approach could work. I'm not saying that works for everybody uh, or that's the right approach for everybody. Uh, but, uh, you know, there are ways to look at this that are a little bit more innovative. Um, I, by, by contrast, Sam, what have the NDP done the last three years? In so I went down to the Crosstown Clinic last year and I shook the cage and nurses came out. You know, I said, you know, uh, when I left, uh, there were 183 addicts that were on the program. So we've now had 5,000 people die of a drug addiction since then. How many people do you now have on the program? They said 183. I couldn't believe it. This government has had four years, it's going on their fourth year of mandate and hasn't been a single seat added. You know, we've hmm. turned this province upside down to save 2,800 lives. If, worst case scenario, if we were- Related to COVID. Sweden, yeah, if we were Sweden, they, they had 6,000 people die, we would have had 3,000. Uh, we've had 250, say. So, you know, 2,800, we, ser we saved 2,700 people. Average age, 87. Uh, and we lost 5,000 people. Average age, 40. Now, if you're an economist, you would sort of had, hmm, life years lost. 40 year old, average age 80, you lost 40 years times 5,000. Is that 200,000 or is a, it's an yeah. incredible uh, amount of deaths. You lose per people when they're in their 80s, uh, you know, you there's not a lot of um, life years there. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we don't wanna be too functional <laughs> uh, about that or, you know, uh, Utilitarian, they call it. You well, but I do think you bring up another point that I, I strongly endorse, which is I feel like our governments have focused so much on minimizing the number of deaths of COVID that they've over completely overlooked the economy. They've also completely overlooked, as you pointed out, deaths by other means, such as um, fentanyl and drug overdoses. Yeah. And I think it's quite unfortunate. There needs to be a rethink on that. There's at least 500 people directly related to the lockdown that have been have died of overdose and this mm -hmm. is a serious problem yeah and, and then you got to remember last year we lost 900 people from the flu and related lung pneumonias yeah viral uh, lung disease and um, you know I know a friend of mine had a, runs a, a seniors home he lost 10 people in one month in December mm -hmm. from the flu right we didn't turn the economy upside down we yeah. didn't do anything like that. 
Unfortunately, a lot of people are going to say, oh, you're you're a denier of what COVID is doing to our society. But I, I get oh, it. I, it makes sense hey, to me. Look, I have 40% lung capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, would probably die. You know, what do I do? I stayed in ho- at home for uh, 12 weeks. Uh, Lynn only let me out once every two weeks. I've got <laughs> out six times, you know. So, yeah, you want to you want to be careful and you want to be uh, prudent. Uh which is say uh, you know other jurisdictions that haven't uh, done as strong a lockdown they you know people you know they they care about that and mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, the reality is young people very rarely die of of this thing and so uh you know it's it's a it's a serious problem but um it's not our only problem we have to recognize that all of the people that have lost their life savings their retirement was all tied up in their business. Um, there's going to be a lot of suicides. There was in 2008, 2009. We sure. registered a lot more suicides because of the economic uh, impact. There will be a lot of that. There's a lot of young children and, and uh, family members who are now forced to isolate with abusers. There are children that aren't getting school, uh, especially I worry about the grade one, two, three when you got reading and arithmetic, very, very basic mm-hmm. skills, that some of these, you know, more vulnerable children will carry that with them for the rest of their life, that mm-hmm. missing element. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so the thing about uh, COVID and lockdowns is the the uh, the cost is, or, or the benefits are really measurable and immediate. You can see, oh, 239 uh, people died. Good work, you know. The costs, are not immediate yes they are not as easily measurable so there's going to be a reckoning uh, one day something i'd like to touch on which is about the economy and about finance and the financial (laughs) accounting financial reporting so i listed what i saw as being my the the eight reasons that i felt why uh, john horgan decided to call an election and i believe it was my eighth reason was because um Unlike in the financial industry and the public capital markets where public companies are required to report their financial statements every quarter and um, and you could even get more up-to-date information if there's material events, they have to report on that immediately. Um, in the world of um, of government, it's they report once a year. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the financial data of the government of British Columbia and how it's handled its financial affairs, the last reporting date was the end of March of 2020, which is right when COVID started to hit. Mm. And I thought, well, you know, it's kind of convenient that an election's being called now because if we were to wait till the fixed election date of 2021, by that point, all the spending activity that would have gone on through the remainder of 2020, because our government reports from basically April 1st mm. to March 31st. So you would have April 1st of 2020 until March 31st of 2021. And you've had all that spending activity uh, completed and published and documented and available for the public and people like yourself to see, you're assuming you were still in the opposition seat because we haven't had an election yet. And now all of a sudden election comes and you'd be able to identify that and say, hey, NDP, this is now we can see where you've spent your money. And I do I do wonder if that's a big factor here is that you are kind of got your hands tied behind your back right now because we none of us really know how much spending has gone on. Is that a fair comment? You really nailed it. 
um, this government does not want to have to go to the public when those numbers are out. They are desperate to get this out of the way when they have what's called the rally effect. And you'll see in any a country that deals with a crisis, there's called the rally effect. Okay. Everybody rallies around the leader, around the government, we're all together, lock arms, we're gonna beat this thing together. And this is what the BC Liberals did. We said, okay, we're gonna suspend our traditional opposition role. There's only one uh, opposition right now, it's called COVID. We're gonna get behind Bonnie Henry, which who, by the way, was hired under BC Liberal as a deputy. Um, and uh, we feel that we really have to work with her and uh, respect her role and uh, listen to her and uh, do what we need to do. So when people say uh, the NDP has done a great job, excuse me, that was all the Greens, the NDP and the Liberals who all came, came together and said, we're going to listen to the public health officials and do this together. And, you know, I kind of think, I thought, I think we should get a little credit in there too, because you might have noticed that we haven't been criticizing and, you know, pushing, uh, you know, telling the government it's it's wrong or anything like that. We said, let's join together and we got to beat this thing together. So um, I think you're right that this election is called because they want to get this over and they don't want you to know what the real numbers are before they have to go to the public. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important. I think it's a very important thing that listeners uh, take into consideration, um, not trying to sway people to vote one way or another, but just to keep that in mind that uh, that in, in, in electing a majority government, whoever that may be, whether it's yourselves at the Liberal Party or the BC NDP, there's a four years of, of um, sort of unchecked uh, activity or governance um, that'll be uh, permitted from that point forward, assuming we have a, a majority government. Mm -hmm. um, Andrew Wilkinson talked about extensive has talked extensively about rebuilding our economy together. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a nice uh, campaign slogan, but what does a recovery look like to you and to the BC Liberal Party? Like, what do we need to do? What do we need our government to do to be able to get this recovery underway? Well, a lot of it is going to be stimulation okay. of, of um, consumption and such. And that's uh, really behind uh, the PST idea of uh, suspending that. You know, we okay. want to uh, give people a real incentive to get out there and start getting on with their lives, building the economy, purchasing, um, you know, buying uh, things and, and having this uh, discount, you know, on all purchases. So just for the listeners to be clear and so everybody knows what the Liberal Party's um, election promises on this is to eliminate the PST for the next 12 months. Is that correct? Yeah. And then uh, which is 6%, I believe. Yeah. And then cut it down to 3% by the next year. So um, th that's the whole the philosophy of we need to stimulate the economy. We need to get people back to work and back in business and uh, you know, uh, that would be a fantastic way mm -hmm. of really generating some excitement and getting things going again. Have any economists uh, or anyone who's kind of looked at this independently uh, vouched for that strategy at all? Or have you, within your party, has somebody run those numbers to say what they anticipate that might do for the economy? Oh, I think uh, it's everybody uh, 
it's not it doesn't take brain science or you know rocket science to to figure out that when you reduce prices when you uh, bring down the cost of uh, goods services uh, that's going to result in um, more purchases so uh, it's pretty much uh, an economic tour a truism that uh, uh, reducing prices increases sale uh, purchase. Mm-hmm. Now, Sam, a lot of the people who work for me actually live in your riding, and I've told them all they they should make a point of listening to this podcast. I did actually invite um, your your competitor in this campaign is Brenda Bailey with the BC NDP. Uh, for the record, we did invite her to come on, and we haven't heard back from her office yet. Um, one of the things that I've said to to the people who live in your riding, I said, you know, you should pay attention to Sam because he's obviously uh, um, an established. Uh, He's got an established record of winning elections and winning ridings, but the last one was very close. You should pay attention to it. Um, one of the concerns I have as a voter um, is if a if we have a, a majority NDP government who continues to spend, that they are likely, or there's a high probability they'll raise taxes. Now, they did raise the highest marginal tax rate a few years ago. Um, what I thought was really interesting was under the Christy Clark government, which I believe you were an MLA under, um, she actually, I think you guys had uh, reduced the highest marginal tax rate as long as the government hit a surplus for two years in a row, and, and, and you did. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really neat tie to the way that you structured your tax. Like basically, it kind of almost motivated me to go to work and <laughs> make a bit more for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but my marginal tax rate, Sam, is now 53.5%. Mm. It used to be 98.5 or something like that. But now it's 53. Wow. And every day that I go to work, it just kind of bugs me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had no problem with it before. I was like, you know, I was giving away basically 50 cents in the dollar. But I could look around and say, look at my neighborhood, look at my streets. And despite what we talked about earlier, look, on the whole, what an amazing country to live in, right? But now I look and go, man, if I take risks as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, and I go and invest a, 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 a dollar to, to take, a, take a flyer on a new venture mm-hmm. and it doesn't pan out, nobody in the government's giving me that dollar back. Like I, that's my dollar to lose. Mm-hmm. Now, if I manage to make a dollar on that dollar, I got to give 53 and a half cents of that dollar to the government and I only keep less than half. And it's highly demotivating. In fact, the day after the provincial government announced this, I called up my tax lawyer and I said, Tim, I know you've been soliciting me for years to engage in all these different sort of tax saving schemes that required a bit more work and a bit more money. And I didn't want to do it. Let's dust that off and let's start start evaluating that again. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a mindset that happens when it switches from below to above 50%. Mm. If the liberal government one in a majority, what do you think you guys would do as far as personal tax rates are concerned? Well, what I have noticed, uh, the difference between the NDP and the BC Liberals is the NDP has a quite shocking lack of curiosity about economics, about the study of economics and how economies work. They're just not interested, you know. They just think uh, the government can come in, and if you don't want, to, you know, people to pay more rent, you just call, bring in rent controls. If you want people to make more money, you just up the minimum wage, you know. 
these are very simple ideas that you know the government can just dictate things and it will happen and uh, this lack of interest or curiosity at all and even a lack of respect they actually think economics is some of them think it's evil it's actually uh, an evil way to think about life you know that no you should be fair and you know government should be able to dictate how the how things should be and how relationships should be and they don't real really realize what an economy how it happens how it grows how it dies um and um and on all of the uh unexpected consequences of heavy-handed government intervention you know I, I remember i even mentioned this to the minister of housing in estimates once and i said you know that we haven't had any rental housing built since 1973 uh, that there has been some recently because of incentives but for the 80s and 90s and the knots there was no rental housing built she couldn't believe that and she consulted her uh, advisor and, and shocked to find out what no rental housing built in the 70s and the 80s at all you know uh, very little and uh, this is what happens when you take a heavy hand of government and just wave the wand and, and you know decree how the world will be more fairer um, you know I couldn't believe that we we put up the minimum wage in the middle of the pandemic all these small businesses are struggling or suffering in the middle of the pandemic you loaded up this these fragile businesses with more costs um you know and, and it's it's really it is easy to make the case in front of people that don't know economics or don't believe in it or don't respect it at all but that's not how you build an economy it's not going to work you know, you, um, so, you know, I can't tell you. So would the you, BC Liberal Party raise personal tax rates? So I can't tell you they will do one thing or the other. I can okay. tell you that they understand that there's a consequence for every action you make. And I think what you will get from the BC Liberals is the uh, emphasis on stimulating business, stimulating people to work harder. And you do that by reducing taxes and and by uh, you know reducing tax yeah taxes and uh, whether they be sales or income taxes and uh, you know as to how the wrestling goes on in the caucus when it actually gets done I can tell you you're you're more likely to get a government that is respectful of economic principles and uh, the way the uh, economy works. Than the NDP, who uh, are more likely to just, oh, we need money, let's take it. Oh, those guys have a lot. Why don't we just take it from them? And they don't understand how that cascades through the economy and actually makes you worse off than if you hadn't used your heavy hand. That's a good point. So, Sam, do you think that if the NDP have a four-year majority government four-year mandate, do you think there's a good chance that they will continue to raise personal income taxes? That is their standard MO, you know, that uh, uh, they, um, you know, the, the, the rhetoric 
of the left is is like that. You know, they uh, do tend to use the heavy hand and and chase away our prosperity as they do it. And usually, like we went through the 1990s when every every uh, economic entity in the world was zooming ahead, and there was a the the greatest uh, you know uh, economic uh, you know, growth, and we missed the whole thing. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> we missed the whole thing because uh, we had taken a different approach, not understanding economics, not respecting uh, the the importance of nurturing and cherishing and supporting your economy, not using it like an ATM where you, you need more cash for your uh, public programs and you just take it, you know. Uh, without even thinking about it, the, the way they did the uh, employer's health tax and just just crushed businesses. The, their own committee said, "No, do it in a different way. You can take it from different uh, different uh, ways, but don't load this all up on many of these small businesses that really will uh, will not be able to survive." Mm-hmm. So this lack of curiosity, basic curiosity. I mean. This is come on. People get Nobel prizes about economics. Like, is there no interest in what these people know and what they've discovered about how an economy works? So I think you're much better off to uh, vote toward the BC Liberals and get somebody that at least is interested in this topic. <laughs> now, Sam, uh, we've got a few minutes left here before we have to wrap this up. Your personal um, platform on your website highlights. Uh, three key themes. One of them is safe neighborhoods. We've talked about that. There's a more pro- prosperous communities. And the last part you write about is the, to create a more desirable place to live. Now, in your writing, which is defined as Vancouver Fr- Falls Creek. Uh, I always get Falls Creek and Fraser View. Where is Fraser View? Is it? Across the way. Across the way. Okay. So Vancouver Falls Creek. So that includes Olympic Village, part of Kitsilano, Pretty much all of Yale Town, the Granville Corridor, and Gastown. I got that right? Yeah, for the most no, part. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Olympic Village does not have any schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my one of my colleagues lives down there, as we were talking about earlier, with two young boys uh, in grades this year, grades one and four. Um, now you have a very strong stance on the Olympic Village school. How would winning in this election help in pushing that forward? And maybe before you even talk about that, can you just give everybody who's listening an overview of what the landscape looks like in Olympic Village today? Hmm. Well, um, I, uh, in my first term, the focus was getting the Crosstown School built, 415 uh, elementary school positions. And that was done. I was very pleased to open it officially and get all the students in there. Uh, I had as um, and Crosstown for those we I know we yeah, Expo did. Boulevard near Abbott Street. Great. Um, so that was a wonderful thing. It got tremendous teachers, a great quality education. Um, now uh, you know the next term for me was Olympic Village. Now when I was mayor, my main job was to oversee the Olympic Village development. So all of the public places, the seawalls. All of that was done uh, under my term. And the place that was going to make it really successful was the land we set aside for the Olympic Village School. 
and it's it's tragic that it hasn't been built. You know, we, uh, you know, you, you only get one school a term pretty much, and when you're MLA, you know, you can't really, uh, you know, uh, push it too hard. Uh, but when we were, I was very much uh, preparing for the Olympic school, and I've been asking the the NDP, the Minister of Education and the government, uh, we need to get this done. There are people who live in the Olympic Village who are sending their kids to other neighborhoods. You know, they will walk, they, they will drive their kids to other schools and then come back, park their car and walk to work. And, you know, they live that. that that's my colleague, life. Mike. That's what he does. Is that right? It's, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah, that's tragic. You know, this, this, I was on council in 1995 when we voted to purchase all of the industrial sites there and turn this into a model of environmental responsibility. And one of the key things is you don't have to drive. You you will be able to walk everywhere. Yeah. And that school site right in the center of what's going to be an entire beautiful neighborhood, uh, that is an essential element. And it's the one missing piece. Yeah, sure. And it's tragic to hear of parents that... Yeah, they, I said, why do you have a kids. car? You like, yeah. because it blew like... You know, after, after the Olympics, as we know, Olympic Village was a ghost town, but it's not anymore. I mean, that's 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I said, why do you still have a car? He said, Andrew, I have a car for one reason. I have to get in my car and drive my kids over to like Farside Kitsilano to drop them off at school so I can drive back, park my car, and then either walk to work or take the SkyTrain across underneath to get over to downtown. And, that's so, you, and yeah. I pick them up later. My wife does. Yeah. There's 100 kids that were on wait listed for kindergarten weren't able to get into the ride. Um, uh, but you'll find Elsie Roy, you know, Henry Hudson, uh, Crosstown has children from the Olympic Village. Wow. If you were to bring those kids back to their own neighborhood, there would be a cascading effect. And all the kids around Crosstown and Elsie Roy would now be able to get their kids into the school. You know, they have these lotteries, you know. And yeah, the lotteries, I know. It's unbelievable. Not, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but you know, Sam... Maybe answer what it seems to me to be an obvious question, though. It's like we're talking about schools right now, and obviously this is a big, probably a big factor for people living in your riding. But isn't this a Vancouver school board issue? Isn't this a city of Vancouver issue? Well, they they don't build schools. The province builds schools. Oh, is that right? The money. Okay. So what we did as a city was give this land, you know, that that land set aside. Okay. In our rezoning. Okay. And, uh, but cities don't build schools. No, the province built. You know, 20, 30, 40 million dollars to build a school. And that's done through the provincial government. And uh, it hasn't. And under what ministry? That's the Ministry of Education. Ministry and of who's, education. Who, who is the minister? Mr. Fleming right now. Fleming. And, and has he made any reference or comment to the. We've talked about it a lot. Uh, I thought he was well on the way. It sounded like he was going to do it. But recently, Justin McElroy of CBC interviewed the premier uh, because he was going to build a school in Coquitlamburg Mountain. And he said, what about Olympic Village School? And he tweeted it out, not not really, it's not going to happen or whatever. Uh, the, the idea was he was not going to support the fast tracking of, of Olympic Village School. So that's tragic, you know, that hmm. uh, we've just learned that the NDP will not be supporting the uh, building of this important school. Wow. Okay, well, we're we're uh, what about two weeks away? Just over two, maybe three week, three weeks away from the election. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you won the last election by six hundred votes. What do you need to see happen 
um, other than your own hard work, which is probably number one. But what else do you need to see happen in order to be able to win another four-year mandate and be the MLA for, for your riding? I need people to just uh, ask themselves, look at themselves in the mirror and just say, what's the government, the kind of government that we need for this next period of uh, re economic recovery? And uh, do you want someone like uh, the BC Liberals that are committed to rebuilding that uh, Olympic Village school? Or do you want to go for another term, uh, driving your kids outside of the riding? There must be some difference in the way you're campaigning now versus in previous campaigns because of COVID. Very much. Probably doing yeah, podcasts well, like this. Yeah, this is important. Uh, we've done some Zoom calls and things like that. Uh, these are critical part. You know, we invite people if they want to get involved in our Zoom, uh, especially about neighborhood, neighborhood safety. I've had uh, five of them so far. Mm. And uh, we'll have another one soon. So, Sam, if people want to get involved or find out more about this beyond our podcast, how do they get involved? Um, what can they do to contribute or at least, get, you know, become more informed voter? We need volunteers. We need okay. money. We need everything. We need we need people to be aware if they have if they know neighbors in the area. Uh, you know, I won by 500 votes on a re recount. Uh, now I'm going against the headwinds right now mm -hmm. and I will need to work harder than ever. And I think it'll come down to a few votes. So this is one riding where your vote actually does make a difference. Mm -hmm. So get one, one or two or three votes might be what turns the corner here. So you have social media, you have a Facebook page, I guess, and maybe you have your website. People can just Google yeah, Sam Sullivan. Website. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, please uh, get involved. Yeah. Great. Well, this has been fantastic. Sam Sullivan, uh, MLA for the last two terms with Vancouver Falls Creek, former mayor of Vancouver. Uh, this has been great having you on. Thank you, I wish you the know. best of luck with this campaign. Thank Thanks, you too. Really uh, this has been really good. And um, hopefully you'll have you sitting down here maybe in six or nine months and you'll be MLA for a third term and we can ta talk about how you're handling things then. Wonderful. Thank you. So okay, much. Sam Sullivan, thank you very much. Best of luck.